I'm Christoph Haynes, I'm Dean of the Faculty of Law of the University of Pretoria and a Professor of Human Rights Law. used to be the Director of the Centre of Human Rights at the same university and I'll be teaching on the African Regional Human Rights System. So what I'd like to do is to talk a little bit about the African System for the Protection of Human Rights, the system that, is, uh, that operates under the African Union and that was started under the Organization of African Unity. Um, and say a little bit about the context also within which the system operates. I think perhaps just to start off by saying that the African human rights system, of course, as, as is the case with any other uh, system of legal enforcement of human rights, operates within the broader social context. Um, and that really means then that the situation in Africa, um, the colonial history, um, the level of poverty, um, really the whole social situation within which this regional system operates affects the system and its, in the end uh, its effectiveness um, as well. So I do think if one looks at the African regional human rights system, perhaps just to locate it, um, it's useful to say that this is a part of the international protection of human rights. So we have the United Nations that tries to create the global system for the protection of human rights, which of course has an effect on the 53 countries of Africa in terms of their human rights protection. And of course then all the UN instruments um, and mechanisms for the protection of human rights also affect the quarter of the countries of the world that are based in Africa, whether it's the work of the Council, whether it's the work of the treaty bodies, um, and in particular then also when one looks at the, uh, for example, the International uh, Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, um, and then of course the mixed uh, um, court that we have in Sierra Leone and so forth as well, initiated by the UN, but then of very clear consequences for the idea of impunity in Africa as well. But within this broader context of the international protection of human rights, we have in some regions in the world also uh, regional protection of human rights, in particular then in Europe, Latin America and Africa as well, and in the emerging systems in Asia and the Arab-speaking world as well. Um, but perhaps where one should really start is by saying that the first line of defense, the first level for the protection of human rights in any country and in, in African countries then in particular, uh, is in the country itself. Um, it's only once one's human rights are not protected on the domestic level that international mechanisms really come into play. And that's why I like to think of them really as safety nets uh, when you fall through the cracks in your particular country, the legal protection within your own country, the constitutional protection and so forth, then the international system kicks in. And in those parts of the world where there is a regional system, we then have the regional safety net and then eventually we have the United Nations safety net as well. So in Africa then, um, as I've mentioned, the continental um, body really is intergovernmental body is the African Union. Uh, it was formed in 2002 and that um, was, its, its predecessor was the Organization of African Unity that was formed in 1963. That was the time when African countries were becoming independent after colonialism. Almost all the countries in Africa were colonized in one way or another. Um, and then since Ghana became independent in 57, um, we then had Nigeria in 1960 and so forth, and a number of countries were independent, and they formed the Organization of African Unity. And this organization then focused on the well-being of Africa and set it as its goal. Um, at the time in 63, when the Organization of African Unity was formed, um, they did not particularly state human rights as an objective. At the time it was the African unity and getting rid of apartheid in the south of, of uh, Africa. Those were the main objectives that were, that were set. Um, but then when the African Union replaced the Organization of African Unity in 2002, there was a different uh, uh, really mindset and, and a different approach that was followed. 
and then human rights was recognized as um, part of the principles of the African Union and then also the objectives of the African Union and I'll say a little bit more about that. But I think it's useful to start by identifying the international instruments that form the legal basis of the protection of human rights in Africa. The um, Constitutive Act of the African Union then with its recognition of human rights um, and then in particular the African Charter of Human and People's Rights uh, that was adopted in 81 and entered into force in 86. Um, and there have been two protocols adopted to the, uh, to the African Charter, one on women's rights and one on an African Court of Human Rights, because at the time there wasn't an African Court of Human Rights established. There are also a number of other instruments I think that could be of relevance. Um, there's a treaty on refugees, um, there's one on children's rights, and this one on children's rights I think should be singled out because it has its own enforcement mechanism. There's a committee on the, the rights of children in Africa as well that functions in addition to the African Commission on Human and People's Rights that is created by the African Charter itself. So we really have these two bodies, um, the one with a general mandate, the African Commission on Human and People's Rights under the African Charter, and then also um, the African Human Rights Committee um, that enforces uh, the uh, uh, African um, uh, Convention on the Rights of the Child. Um, in addition to that, there's also a cultural charter uh, in Africa, one on a treaty on corruption, um, and there's also one that um, entered into force on democracy, elections, and governance um, in, in 2008. Um, and this together would form the, the main parts of the African regional system for the protection of human rights. There are also a number of 14 or so sub-regional organizations in Africa, and some of them are also, um, also have a human rights mandate um, in West Africa and in East Africa, Southern Africa, for example. We've recently had a number of cases um, because these sub-regional organizations also have their own courts. Um, we've had a number of cases dealing with human rights on the sub-regional uh, level as well. Perhaps one can focus on the African Charter in particular and then say a little bit about the um, nature of the African Charter. Um, in the first place the norms but then also the enforcement mechanism uh, for the African Charter. In terms of the norms recognized by the African Charter, I think perhaps three things should be mentioned. Um, it is in the first place, as the name indicates, the African Charter on Human and People's Rights. So I think what one should emphasize there is that it recognizes individual rights and most of the individual rights that are recognized in the other international instruments are recognized with some exceptions. Privacy is not explicitly mentioned. Um, also the um, fair trial provisions are not always as elaborate. Um, also political participation not as elaborate as one would find in other international instruments. But by and large, the most of the individual rights that are recognized under international law are recognized in the African Charter. But the fact that it's the African Charter and human people's rights also then indicate that it is a charter that recognizes group rights as well, people's rights. Um, and in a number of ways, people's rights are also then recognized, the people's right to existence, a people's right to equality, and then also a people's right to the third generation rights, such as a, a, a healthy environment. Um, and we've had a number of cases uh, that have dealt with this issue of people's rights, also recognizing then that in addition to a people's right to self-determination versus the outside world, also self-determination in the country itself. So when there's a coup d'etat, 
uh, that, for example, has been held to constitute a violation of the people's right to self-determination. Uh, there have been some cases also concerning the right of subsections of the community, uh, secession as well, although there's not a clear finding on that, um, but also then subsections, for example, a case concerning Nigeria, Ken Sarawiwa and the Ogonis, where they were recognized as a people with a right to a clean environment concerning the extraction of oil in that particular case. So I think the first thing to say about the norms that are recognized is that it recognizes individual rights but also people's rights. And in the second place it, it recognizes not only rights but also duties. Um, and this is stated throughout the African Charter at the beginning as well, um, that this particular instrument, and I also think reflecting then the values within Africa, uh, it's not just simply the idea of rights being entities with which you claim a certain territory and you say to other people, stay out, but you also recognize the glue that holds society together. Um, so I do think the idea of people's rights, that, we, that collectives also play a role, are also captured by the idea of duties. And I think what duties also do is, is to recognize that rights have some limitations. And in other international human rights instruments, we often have a recognition of limitations by saying that you have a certain right subject to limitations, and these limitations are those that are acceptable in an open democratic society based on equality and so forth, um, and th th those limitations that can be reasonably imposed. Now, that's a very elaborate way of stating limitations. Um, uh, perhaps a more direct way of stating limitations is to say that if I've got certain rights, you also have certain duties to respect those rights. And I think that's intuitively very understandable, and it's something which I think makes it more clear what we are talking about when we're talking about rights and duties. Of course, there's always the assumption that there are duties, but the African Charter says this explicitly. And in the African Charter, then in Article 27, which is under the heading of duties, that has become, in effect, the general limitation clause of the African Charter. I think the third point that should be mentioned about the norms um, in the African Charter is that the African Charter recognizes, as I've mentioned, not only civil and political rights, but also socioeconomic rights in the very same founding instrument of the this, of this system, and then also in the third place, certain third generation rights development and the environment that I've mentioned as well. So it's a very comprehensive, ambitious, I would say, um, instrument that reflects also, to a large extent, the cultural specificities and the history of Africa as so I think it's often important to see an international instrument in its historical context. The Universal Declaration responded to the Second World War. The African Charter responded to the history of colonialism, to slavery, um, to the way in which Africa has been really uh, uh, affected by developments around the world, and also the African values itself. Um, so in that way, also the African Charter is a product of its, of its time, a product of the culture with which, within which it was uh, developed. Um, I've already mentioned the issue of limitations and that the African Charter largely through, uh, through the idea of duties also recognized the idea of limitations. There are also the so-called clawback clauses and a lot has been written about the clawback clauses in the African Charter. So there would be a right given um, it would, for example, say you've got freedom of expression, but then this freedom of expression, which is granted, so to speak, with the one hand, on the other hand, it says 
provided that you abide by the law. Um, and the question initially was, does that mean domestic law? Now, of course, if that's domestic law, uh, it does create a problem because then you have an international instrument saying you've got certain rights, but subject to those rights not being taken away by your government on the domestic level. If that's the case, then international supervision really plays no role um, and it doesn't really make sense. Um, and I think to its credit, the African Commission has said, really what is at stake here is that you've got certain rights. These rights can be limited by law, by domestic law, but that law must comply with international standards. And I think in that way, the African Commission has really um, emphasized the fact that, that we are dealing with international supervision that cannot be overridden by domestic law. So that is a little bit about the, uh, the norms that are recognized in the African Charter. Um, I think the second thing is then the supervisory mechanisms. Now, when the African Charter was drafted, and this was between 1979 and 81, um, and part of this happened in the Gambia, um, in Banjul, and for that reason it's also sometimes called the Banjul Charter, um, the idea was to establish a supervisory mechanism, but this supervisory mechanism would then be limited to a commission. Um, it was debated whether there should be a court at the time, um, and I think for a number of reasons the decision was simply to have a commission. As we know, at the time the models were really the European system with a commission and a court, and the inter-American system also with a commission and a court. In the meantime, some of that has changed. The Europeans have abolished the, the commission, which largely was a screening procedure uh, for the court. In the Americas, the commission has played a very active role in developing that system. But in Africa, at the time, the idea was, let's have a commission, and I think for two reasons, um, the, the sentiment was, let's not have a court at the time. One was the, um, the fact that African countries by that time had just become independent, uh, just established their sovereignty. Um, and they were saying, well, that if you have a court, you are in effect surrendering some of your sovereignty, a, a regional court. Um, the other was the argument um, that the, the traditional way of solving disputes in Africa is not necessarily through a court where you have winners and losers. Uh, a commission can try to get people together and try to find some form of reconciliation, um, but a court is not necessarily something that was traditionally functioning in that same way as one would have with the European court, for example, or later the Inter-American court um, in Africa as well. So the decision then simply to have a commission, the commission started functioning in 87. And then many years later, in 1994, when the OAU, the Organization of African Unity, met in Tunis, um, then the idea was forwarded to say, well, the commission doesn't really have teeth, and perhaps we should now move on towards having a court. And I'll say something about the court just now. But first about the commission. The commission um, started functioning, as I've said, in 87. 11 commissioners from various countries and regions in Africa, and the idea is also to make them representative of the different language groups, the different legal traditions, and so forth in Africa. Um, and these commissioners meet twice a year. Um, the headquarters is indeed in Banjul, the very same place where the African Charter was substantially drafted. Um, but they meet twice a year, on average once a year, 50% of their meetings in the Gambia itself and then the other meetings in other parts of Africa. And I think that's also perhaps a unique feature of the African system, the extent to which the Commission goes to the people and not necessarily simply sits in, in Washington with some exceptions or as it happened before 
in Europe with Strasbourg, with a commission with a very strong profile and accessibility then in terms of also its sessions in other African countries. So they meet twice a year for about two weeks um, and they have a number of, um, of functions that they fulfill. Their mandates include that they consider individual communications, um, also interstate communications, but that has happened very rarely. Uh, mostly individuals bring cases against the states in which they find themselves. And so the African Commission can hear these cases and then um, adjudicate those cases, quasi-judicial function, um, where they then take the African Charter and measure what the state has done in respect uh, and, and against the African Charter then. So individual communications in the first place. Um, they also consider state reports, the typical UN treaty body system, whereby states have to rep uh, report in this case uh, every two years to the African Commission. And not, not all states do that, um, but a, a large number of states have done it. Um, they submit a report to the a state report to the African Commission, and the African Commission then again looks at the African Charter and looks at the report and then see whether the state is complying with its obligations in terms of the African Charter. Um, there are really two components, of course, to state reporting. In the first place, there's introspection, where the state, in its own capital, wherever they do that, look at the African Charter and look at themselves and mirror themselves uh, in the African Charter and ask themselves whether they're complying with these norms of civil and political rights and socioeconomic rights and so forth. That's the, the introspection part, and that's in many instances perhaps the most important uh, aspect of state reporting. The second aspect is once the state report is submitted to the African Commission that they do inspection then. So in addition to the introspection you have inspection where the African Commission then looks at what this, the state's practices um, has been. Um, the African Commission has um, in a number of cases also started with issuing concluding observations um, where they then give feedback and that becomes a rolling process then if it functions properly a rolling function of introspection, inspection, um, concluding observations and then the next round where you see whether what was said earlier has been integrated. In a number of other ways the African Commission also um, looks at the implementation of the African Charter um, they have special rapporteurs, special procedures on a number of issues they've had, for example, on the conditions of prisons, on extrajudicial killings, on women's rights, and so forth. Um, special rapporteurs that look at issues in particular. Um, they've also adopted a number of resolutions um, dealing with human rights issues in Africa, whether, whether country-specific or in general. Um, and country-specific, of course, where they then comment on the human rights practices of a particular country, um, but on a thematic level, um, I think perhaps what has been most useful is that in a number of ways, for example, where one deals with fair trial procedures, which I've mentioned are not elaborated completely in the African Charter, whether th they have then supplemented this with their own interpretation uh, or political participation of what it really means then to have these uh, provisions in the African Charter. So I think as far as the African Commission is concerned, um, perhaps those are some of the main functions um, in terms of which they then pursue the promotion and protection of, of human rights in Africa, in particular then those rights recognized uh, in the African Charter. In terms of the composition, as I've mentioned, 11 members, 
Um, and although there were initi initially a number of criticisms about a government official serving on the African Commission, that has changed a number of years ago um, and the note verbal was issued. It's now incorporated into the, um, the rules of procedure of the African Commission in terms of which people with independence um, are then, uh, or states are encouraged to, pr uh, to nominate people with independence who are not government officials or uh, ambassadors or people within cabinet, for example, which used to be the case. Um, it's to a large extent now um, we have people who serve as judges or members of human rights commissions um, or people who serve on independent electoral commissions and so forth who now serve on the African Commission. Now the idea of a commission which technically doesn't take legally binding decisions um, as, as I've mentioned initially that was the idea that we'll simply have a commission and states can bring complaints, individuals can bring complaints and then they have the mandate that I've described. That has been supplemented since 94, a number of uh, uh, meetings took place and eventually in 98 then a protocol establishing an African court uh, on human people's rights was adopted. This was the time when the Organization of African Unity was also transformed then uh, just shortly afterwards into the African Union and parallel to this initiative to establish a court on human people's rights there was also the initiative then under the newly found African Union also to establish a court um, that deals with justice under the African Union, the African Court of Justice. Now, in this process, at some point, uh, uh, President Obasanyu, uh, who was then chairing the African Commission, said, well, we should actually look at the issues of, um, of, uh, of costs, for example, and we should really merge these two. And a number of uh, uh, meetings took place then, and eventually we now have a protocol that will, in fact, merge these two courts. So the net effect is um, that a protocol has been uh, adopted um, that will establish an African Court of Justice and Human Rights. And it will have two chambers, um, one that deals with general issues and one that deals with human rights issues as well. So we, we still have the commission. Above that, we have the court. And cases then can go, in most instances, go to the commission. And then after the commission, it can go to the, to the court that takes legally binding decisions. Now, th that's the general position. If states merely ratify the protocol in question, um, then individual communications go to the commission. And then afterwards, the commission or the states involved can take the case to the, to the court. So the general position is that cases go to the commission and then they can be taken to the court afterwards. But if states make a special declaration, individuals can approach the court directly. Um, so that means that they potentially can either bypass the commission or they can go to the commission and then the individuals can take the decision to take the case to the court um, as well. So the, the commission, as I've mentioned, is based in um, Banjul, um, in the Gambia. And this court is based then in Arusha, just outside of Arusha in Tanzania. And that's where this court that deals with the African Union cases themselves, the Court of Justice component, is based. And then also that deals with human rights uh, cases under the African Charter, but also more broadly under any other um, human rights instruments that has been ratified by the states in question. And that would mean that, as I've referred to earlier, um, the African Children's Charter could potentially also be adjudicated um, by that particular court. Um, and what is still a bit uncertain is also that potentially it seems that UN treaties can also be adjudicated 
by this court and also sub-regional treaties, any human rights treaty that has been ratified um, by the state in question. So I think the African system has come a long way um, and, and this is really the heart and the core of the African system is the African Charter which then creates um, the African Commission and then the protocol creating the court and there's also of course the protocol dealing with women's rights then because the African Charter um, having been written in the early 1980s dealt with human rights of women in a way where they in Article 18 dealt with the rights of women and children and in fact the disabled as well in the same article and then the feeling was that this is not adequate and a protocol was uh, adopted then recognizing women's rights very extensively um, as well. Now in addition to the the African Charter system uh, there's the system on the rights of children that has been mentioned but there's also a much broader system that deals with human rights in Africa and this this is a system that was created under NEPAD, the New Partnership for Africa's Development, um, which is really the development program of the African Union. Now part of NEPAD then was to say, well, we have this um, program of action under NEPAD, um, but we also want to make sure that there is a more stringent form of ensuring compliance with those standards set by NEPAD. And a number of states then um, agreed to adopt the African peer review mechanism that deals with four issues. It deals with political governance, it deals with economic governance, um, it deals with uh, corporate governance and it deals with social, socioeconomic development in the countries involved, the countries that have signed the memorandum of understanding. Not all countries have, just more than half of the African countries have signed this memorandum of understanding and essentially what the African peer review mechanism does then is to say that the heads of state of those countries involved will get together around the table and they will then in turn discuss um, the developments in all the African countries concerning those four areas that I've mentioned. It's a bit like the universal peer review system of the, of the United Nations. Although this is a much broader mandate, it does not only focus on human rights. It focuses on human rights as part of political governance but the African peer review mechanism then also focuses, as I've mentioned, on corporate governance, economic governance and so forth as well. Um, and the African peer review mechanism then, um, including then um, the, the issue of human rights, um, has been in existence. A number of countries have gone through this process and this is by and large then really a political process. So I think one can make the distinction between having on the one extreme uh, judicial enforcement of human rights in Africa through the court, then we have the quasi-judicial enforcement through the commission itself, and then the political enforcement of a number of issues, but in particular then, or, or including then also the issue of human rights through the African peer review mechanism. So this is really a range of issues that deal with human rights protection in Africa, which is probably wise uh, because as, as we've uh, seen earlier, um, the idea of a court is not necessarily the traditional way of solving disputes in Africa. But this is supplemented then by a commission and by a political process um, across the spectrum of uh, human rights enforcement in Africa then as well. To conclude, I think one can do a bit of assessment of the African human rights system. It's easy to criticize the system. Um, I think for many years it's been criticized because the commission took decisions that were in many instances ignored. Um, and also, to a large extent, for, for a number of years it was politicized. 
some of the criticisms leveled against the system also focused on the way in which the norms are recognized in the African Charter, the clawback clauses, for example. Um, and I think fr from, uh, from those perspectives, one can criticize the system, also pointing out that for many years it was not really properly resourced. Um, and there were all kinds of problems with the Secretariat, for example, um, and in many ways this stood out then um, as things that kept back the, the function of the, of the Commission. Um, this to some extent has been addressed um, through, the, through some of the mechanisms that I've mentioned. The resourcing situation is much better now as well, the independence of the Commission. Um, the court has been added to provide more teeth to the system. Um, it will be very important to see to what extent the decisions of the court are really uh, recognized and enforced by the states concerned. A commission can potentially uh, survive non-compliance much better than a court if the, the court's bubble is burst by a state not recognizing a decision. Uh, I think that has far-reaching consequences for the court itself. Um, NEPAD has also been uh, criticized in the African peer review mechanism has also been criticized as not being effective. Um, and I think uh, many of the criticisms leveled against the African system has also turned around the issue of effectiveness. Um, and it has been said, or it's been charged by people who criticize the system, um, who say that these mechanisms are created not in the first place as a protector of human rights, but really as a shield. Uh, because now you have a human rights mechanism and then you shielding yourself from international scrutiny. Well, I think some of these criticisms may be valid. Uh, some of them have been addressed. Um, but I do think what the African system really adds um, is to give the notion of human rights a local relevance in Africa, which it otherwise wouldn't have. Um, the idea of an exception to Africa in respect of human rights um, has not really been very much um, in the forefront uh, because the African mechanisms have accepted the idea of human rights um, through these mechanisms that have been created. So if one talks about universality of human rights, yes, it's the same set of values that should be applicable to everyone, but at least the regional system in Africa in this particular case offers the opportunity of saying that the region itself also has a role to play in defining what those norms should be in the first place. So active participation in what the, the, the norms should be that should be made applicable eventually. So I do think from that point of view, uh, the regional system in Africa has played a, a positive role. Um, it provides an entry point in terms of human rights protection. And I think it's also important, um, as we've looked at right at the beginning, is to see it within the broader context. One of the main issues that affects human rights in Africa is poverty. Um, and it would be unrealistic to say that we need to create a mechanism that ignores the reality of poverty and that will be hugely successful on its own. If one wants to address the issue of human rights in Africa, I do think that in addition to strengthening the mechanisms that we have, um, a precondition for addressing the human rights situation in Africa will be addressing the issue of poverty. Um, and in particular because human rights really entails people asserting their rights also placing people in the position where they are able to take control of their lives and not being controlled from the outside. So I do think it's, a, it's really a, a multifaceted approach that one will have to follow in terms of strengthening the mechanism that is already there. And that is a good thing that the mechanism is already there. 
Um, that is a precondition for changing the situation as far as poverty is concerned, but it's also a consequence once poverty has been changed that that mechanism will be able to function uh, more strongly uh, in the long run as well. Thank you.